Hello, and welcome to episode 86 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talked to Dr. Bill Hart Davidson. Meanwhile, Jim and I had never heard those two words put together before in quite that way. Contract cheating, what do you mean? We had heard about paper mills. Yeah, I mean, we were very naive in some ways because we were chasing this as a instance of weaponized rhetorical content using familiar techniques to us in the, you know, tech geek world. We didn't necessarily make the connection that, oh, this is a whole this is a whole thing that there are academics out there who study this phenomenon called contract cheating. Dr. Jim Rodolfo. But this is one of those things where, you know, in this case, there is a specific audience that's being that's being targeted here with a particular product, um, and I think that's the that's the novelty here for for university administrators, writing teachers, and people that work alongside um, both in IT at universities is to think about how those strategies are being carried out using university infrastructure to boost the search engine optimization for um, these 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 sites, and frankly. The infrastructure is sophisticated, and um, you look at a lot of these sites, and it rivals. And Dr. Chris Lindgren. Because often the paper mills, what they do is they prey on the recycled materials that are, are existing out there and that they've been scraping and getting and from all these different kinds of sources that we haven't even talked about yet. In February 2021, Red Ops published Ret Compromised of February 2021 Hashtag Red Ops special report, wherein the authors find that, quote, actors working to the benefit of paper mills have crossed over from ethically questionable yet still legal advertising practices to the systematic and illegal compromise of university websites, end quote. Furthermore, this report finds that, quote, actors working to the benefit of paper mills are infiltrating university systems via well-known vulnerabilities in their content management systems, and in some cases, replacing the university content with illicit paper mill materials, end quote. The Red Ops folks define paper mills as companies that sell academic writing meant to satisfy the requirements of a writing assignment. Since many schools use plagiarism detection software, such paper mills promise clean content that will not raise red flags in corporate plagiarism detection systems. End quote. These findings are incredible and incredibly important as we consider the different ways that digital technologies have impacted writing and writing practices, stuff the computers and writing folks have been doing for 30 plus years. Bill Hart Davidson earned his PhD in 1999 in rhetoric and composition from Purdue University. He is a senior researcher in the Writing and Digital Environments Research Center and Associate Dean of Research Graduate Education in the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. He has published over 75 articles and book chapters and is co-inventor of Eli Review, a software service that supports writing instruction. 
Jim Rodolfo's work focuses on the intersection of rhetorical theory and digital technology. His fourth book, Red Ops, Rhetoric and Information Warfare, co-edited with Bill Hart Davidson, was published in 2019 by University of Pittsburgh Press. Rodolfo is also a recipient of a 2012 Middle East and North Africa Regional Research Fulbright for the West Bank and Israel. The 2014 Richard Oman Award for Outstanding Article in College English and the 2019 7C Technology Innovator Award. He is an associate professor and director of composition at the University of Kentucky. Chris Lindgren's research and teaching specializes in literacy, rhetoric and technology, and writing in the sciences. He investigates what can be learned about the dynamic nature of writing by studying the rhetorical complexity of writing and reading computer code. He has previously published about crisis rhetorics that call for computer coding as a mass literacy. He is an assistant professor of technical communication and data visualization at Virginia Tech. This is a fascinating discussion on a critical topic I didn't know anything about. It's a necessary interview for all writing instructors and program administrators. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Drs. Bill Hart Davidson, Jim Rodolfo, and Chris Lindgren. What's your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? Who are you? And what do you do? Yeah, uh, Chris Lindgren. I'm an assistant professor of technical communication at Virginia Tech in the Department of English. Uh, my role, um, I teach in the PTW program, the Professional Technical Writing Program. It's our undergrad, and as well as our rhetoric and writing PhD program. Um, and if you if you care to look, I also studied the rhetorics and writing of code, um, and that's my main um, research that I do is understanding what does it mean to understand coding as writing. I'm Jim Rodolfo. I am an associate professor in the Department of Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies at the University of Kentucky, and I've been the director of composition there since 2015. And I'm Bill Hart Davidson. Uh, I am a professor in the Department of Writing, Rhetoric, and American Cultures at Michigan State University, and I also work there in the College of Arts and Letters as the Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Education. So that's a fun bunch of jobs all at once. So you're all here to talk with me today on this episode about an article that you all published in February of 2021 in Red Ops. So let's start off with a question about Red Ops. What is Red Ops and how did it begin and what kind of things are you doing right now? So when Jim was at gra in graduate school at Michigan State way back uh, a long time ago now, um, we started having informal conversations about a topic 
that became a, a research interest for us. And that eventually led to a publication of an edited collection by the University of Pittsburgh Press by that name, Red Ops. And it generally refers to a tendency to use, especially the dynamics of social media to weaponize rhetorical knowledge. Um, we were noticing that it was happening in interesting ways from us from a theoretical standpoint, but also disturbing ethical ways. And uh, we also were concerned that maybe not enough um, folks were aware of it, that we were, um, as a field, exporting some kind of know-how that these other groups, including military and intelligence agencies, were finding quite useful to carry out their mission. Um, and so that's where it began. And maybe Jim can talk a little bit about what we've done up, up to that point. Yeah, so the edit collection, uh, we tried to um, frame some examples with, with contributors, um, practitioner examples and, and theoretical historical examples um, that we thought the field might find interesting. Um, the report that came out in February of, um, of this past year is basically uh, something that we saw as a trend um, that was happening uh, in the pandemic where we saw institutions being compromised, university websites being compromised to direct students to paper mill resources. Uh, and we saw it happening systematically. So, you know, prior to, um, to December of, of la November of last year, uh, I'd seen a couple examples of this, um, like wist.edu, rpi.edu, and then uh, that was 2018, 2019, 2020, we started to see a cluster of these. And it was just that we were noticing them. I think that we would all agree that they were probably happening systematically prior to us sort of becoming aware of this as a trend. Um, and there's some people in contract, contract cheating studies um, like Sarah Eaton. Um, and you know she's documented some examples of this happening um, in, in 2018. Um, Tom Liston, a person who works in IT, has documented this in 2016. Um, but what was new for us was the systematic compromise of university websites on behalf of paper mills. Uh, and as Bill sort of uses this metaphor, this is students basically being direct, you know, somebody standing in front of the writing center with a sign saying, don't go to the writing center, go to this fake writing center down the road. And, you know, you, you, and they won't tell you whether or not you're actually, you know, talking with the real writing center or not in most cases they'll drop you into a chat especially with the redirect hacks um, the sql redirects and they if you ask you know is this something that my teacher would be okay with or you know is this the writing center they'll be very vague um so it is a kind of entrapment um bait and switch uh and it's it's weaponizing a kind of, of rhetorical knowledge that we saw in other examples uh problematically so throughout um examples related to the, the weaponization of social media for other other nefarious things. Um, so we, we wanted to draw attention to this in that report um, that we did in December 2020, looking at a, a pilot of um, 14 paper mill domain names and their occurrence on the .edu top level domain name. Uh, and we were able to quickly find um, by bracketing that as the search parameters about 100 over 100 examples of compromised university websites ranging across the institutional spectrum in terms of you know, Stanford um, to two-year colleges um, is it, it, not really specific in terms of a, a target of a kind of institution. Um, and that led to a series of other studies that we can talk about. Yeah, I, I'll just add the weird thing there, Charles, was 
after writing about these influence campaigns that we had pointed to in these other domains, here we found one in our own backyard. And so that was the ethical draw. Jim and I were like, whoa, this is happening to our students and places like writing centers. Um, we can't in good conscience ignore it because we've just rang the bell to say, hey, this is happening generally. And all of a sudden, oh, it's happening to us. <laughs> so that was our, I guess, our call to action last year in 2020. You know, one of the main premises of the, of the Red Ops collection is that the weaponization of digital rhetoric is really cheap. It's, it's very affordable. Uh, and um, there's a variety of examples that we can talk about in terms of that, that affordability. But these kinds of compromises on behalf of paper mills are not very expensive to do systematically, um, but they're impactful in terms of, you know, the, the, the potential for students to be deceived uh, and institutional resources being compromised. Uh, and that, that sort of um, concern, especially with students who were, were largely um, distant in, uh, in, in online courses in summer 2020, of them being, you know, more remote and more uh, removed from institutions and, and, and the resources that, that they could provide. Mm -hmm. um, so for us, it was sort of like a moment where we had to sort of work on this quickly to get that report out. Um, so institutions could start looking at this um, and, uh, and acting on it. So this is fascinating. And admittedly, it's not something I know a lot about, but as a writing teacher, I think it's something I've want to know a lot about, right? And so I want to mention the title uh, from of the report, Ret Compromise, a February 2021 Red Ops Special Report. But the thing that I'm I'm confused about, I guess, is how did this begin? Like where did this come from as an idea? Like and and who are who are some of these bad actors involved in, in this phenomenon? That's a good question. So one of the one of the things he is that none of the attacks are especially new. So the attack that we see is very common and you often see it um, happening in WordPress sites and other um, sites that have some vulnerabilities because they haven't been updated uh, in a long time. Usually the content that gets injected into those sites or replaced or the redirects are to something other than what we were seeing here with a paper mill. They, they might be redirecting you, you might have seen these in your own perusings over time, uh, to a place to buy pharmaceutical products, to buy drugs overseas that you can't get here, or to um, for paycheck loans. Um, paycheck loan services is another one. It's a variety of shady kind of businesses. And the tactics are really uh, to use these, these kinds of illicit hacks, SEO, to boost the uh, search engine optimization of the URL so that it becomes more visible when people do searches for it. And so it's, it's the sort of thing that if you've ever run a WordPress blog and you had comment section open and you didn't have a variety of filters set up, you might find that you're all of a sudden you're selling uh, Viagra overseas when you didn't mean to. Um, so that I'll, I'll, I'll kind of hand it to Chris and see if he wants to add anything because he's, he's helped us try to track these things down and, when we, um, when I, I don't know if you have some insight, Kristen, if there's anything especially 
unique or special, right? It's it's pretty garden variety. Yeah, um, as Jim Bill started this project on their own, and then what happened is I I saw this report that they published, and um, they had like a hundred or so instances, and kind of tagging on uh, this whole notion of these attacks aren't novel and that's the case it is it's true the whole they're very easy kind of well-known strategies that if you don't manage your management system of your content um it becomes vulnerable vulnerable very fast um and um i guess i would just add that that what's what piqued my interest in I've always wanted to join a red ops project. <laughs> I've kind of known about the concept for a while, talking with both Jim and Bill. And uh, when I saw this coming across, I I thought to myself, it was kind of the exigence for me, um, where I was like, I wonder if there's more. <laughs> and I wrote my own little script. Um, so I wrote a little crawler that um, does something you know else with the code, right? Um, to use a proxy and use the Google API in a different way than Jim and Bill did originally. And I found even more. Um, and so it's just using, you know, code as a way to, um, like Jim and Bill noted, it, it can be weaponized. And that's the part I've always been fascinated with too. It's that it, it really matters on the context too, to get you to think about the ethical spectrum, right? Of, of mm -hmm. when, when the line is being crossed here. Um, and so, yeah, they're very low cost ways of um, injecting content. And it's not even about the content. That's what Bill's point I think is really important is that I don't think it's necessarily always just about having content and links to click on all the time. I think it's more about that infrastructure of search engines, right? How can we boost the rating of our particular paper mill URL? So when people even just search for something about like quick paper or, you know, like, write a paper for me in the in google th theirs is going to pop up before somebody else's paper mill right so i think that to me is um trying to pin that problem and, and emphasizing that right like it's it's not so much a content strategy that we're used to teaching in techcom <laughs> it's it's more about gaming the entire global infrastructure um for their benefit and one one thing that's that's kind of interesting in terms of the different audiences we've talked to about this is and this is coming from IT. It's not. It's, this is not really a big deal in IT because pharma attacks have been common for so long. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is the kind of thing where you know you find it as an, an instance. You you just patch it. You move on. Uh, it's not something you really think about. You know, you just do it. And I did this. You know, working it wide for for years. I would patch pharma hacks from 2003 to 2009. It's very common. Um, but this is one of those things where you know, in this case there is a specific audience that's being that's being targeted here with a particular product um and i think that's the that's the novelty here for for university administrators writing teachers and people that work alongside um, both in it at universities is to think about how those strategies are being carried out using university infrastructure to boost the search engine optimization for um these these, these sites and frankly the infrastructure is sophisticated and um, you look at a lot of these sites and it rivals um, the infrastructure of a lot of professional organizations. Uh, there is a big market there um, and it is global. Uh, and it's something that if you look at these sites and go, wow, like there's a lot of people that are spending a lot of time building these resources 
uh, to deceive students in a variety of ways. So, oh, go ahead. Charles. No, go ahead, please. Uh, I was just going to mention, um, I think Jim's point is really interesting in that when we run these searches um, and kind of seeing what's the kind of big deal about gaming the search engine, right, um, problem is that top level domain, the TLD, right, the idea that a .edu, right, versus a .com actually makes a difference, right, with regards to like how is trust being defined in mm. the search engine. And so it's interesting how something so tiny like that, right, uh, can can play such a, 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 a can be, I guess, um, weaponized, right? Um, yeah. And, and I, I, that's another thing that drew me to this is like, oh yeah, this is in our, I think uh, Jim and Bill both put it in our backyard, right? Like this is, this is in our house now, right? right? Like, so that's how it got me kind of jabbed up for it too. Yeah. So this is pretty complex. Let's get some definitions. What are what are paper mills? And then what's the primary claim of your or argument of your report? Yeah, that's a great question. So a paper mill isn't, as I like to say, it's not the kind of big factory that turns trees into stuff you ride on in this case. Um, it's a euphemism for usually a, a very small online business that will sell you an essay for money that you can turn in as your own work. And so its primary audience or, or market is students who are um, up against a deadline. And if you want to see uh, this for yourself, just go on Twitter um, and <laughs> tweet something like, oh my God, this essay is due in a few hours and I don't know what to do. And you'll get solicitations just from that. Uh, there will be robots listening and they'll, you'll be offered uh, their products and services. Um, I wouldn't click any further than that if I were you, but you get the idea. So that's what a paper mill is. And this has been pretty foundational work in the field from Kelly Ritter and Rebecca Moore Howard on paper mills. And, and one thing that's been fascinating for us as people that are not, that's not our area, you know, all three of us, I would say it's not our area uh, specifically where we look at that is going back to some of that scholarship and looking at some of the paper mills and realizing that some of these paper mills are now 20 years old. Uh, they, are, they are mature businesses at this point that have been around for quite some time. Um, and at a certain point, they crossed over from putting flyers in the hallways of university buildings as a way to solicit business to, um, you know, in some cases, either outsourcing the um, the search engine optimization work to third parties, or in a few cases, we've seen um, companies that bundle that. They both do they they both facilitate and run paper mills um, through sort of distributed um, uh, work that they have um, point SaaS software that distributes it, and they also are doing the search engine optimization for those paper mills. They're sort of all in one shop. So then the second question you asked, Charles, was um, just a definition, but like how uh, you were saying, how do they work or, or how does the. More interest or, or the, the, yeah, how they work, but also the, the primary claim of the argument or, or oh, argument yeah, of, of, the, of the report. Right. So the first report had a pretty simple claim. It is, Hey, do you realize that these businesses are replacing the content on your website with their own? 
And in some cases, redirecting students coming for help from, I don't know, the Office of Student Support, Academic Support. Instead of seeing that, when they click on that page, they go to this other paper mill instead. Did you know that that was happening? And that's really all that we were trying to do is say, uh, hello. And we made a list of where we are, where those situations were happening. And we offered that, I guess, Jim and I didn't think about this initial report as a, a research study per se. Um, we can talk about how it evolved into that. Uh, but we were really thinking about it as a report, as an alert, like, hey, friends of ours, uh, including people at institutions we knew, you know, who were running writing programs, this is your program, and this is your writing center, and it's redirecting people to this, this place that you probably don't want them to go. And so we just wanted to give folks a heads up. That was our, that was our main, main goal. And it was really like what Jim said earlier, if if I showed up in the writing center at MSU and I saw a card table out front where people were selling papers instead, I'd be like, nah, I don't think Trixie wants that to be happening. Um, and I'd give Trixie a heads up. I'd probably call security. <laughs> but yeah, it got after we did the the initial report, sent that out. Um, some interesting things happened. So, you know, we got um, some people in, in North America that began to sort of act on, on these vulnerabilities and patch them. Um, the most interesting follow-up was um, from colleagues in Australia, um, Kath Ellis and Kane Murdoch, um, who contacted us. And, and we also, speaking in the same line of not knowing a lot about the previous scholarship in our own field on paper mills, um, we didn't know a lot about Australian higher education in terms of how they have situated themselves in opposition to paper mills. Mm. Um, and um, because Australia has um, a centralized uh, uh, government oversight body um, called the Tertiary, Tertiary Education Quality and Standards Agency, uh, it had passed laws about um, paper mills. And some of the paper mills that we identified in the report uh, that used, for example, the Australian education top level domain, which is .edu.au with the country code um, are banned in Australia, um, but they were still operating with the TLD. Hosted uh, in another, another country, but the domain name redirecting to that. Um, so they, they contacted us and they were very interested in us doing a study of Australian higher education, uh, that .edu.au TLD. And so um, Chris, myself and Bill, we, we did a pilot study looking at the vulnerabilities on that, on that top level domain and presented the findings to our colleagues in Australia, um, as well as the Tertiary Education Quality and Standards Agency, um, representatives from the Australian government. And that became a really interesting follow-up because they acted on it pretty quickly as um, a system. Uh, and we have, were contacted by OSCERT, um, the main um, computer security uh, agency for Australian higher education. And they, they said they were acting on every single vulnerability that we reported. Um, so it was a very interesting response in comparison to North America, where, you know, we were dealing individually with institutions and trying to contact them um, in some cases and trying to get the, the, the information out about these vulnerabilities. Whereas over there in Australia, there was uh, a centralized response. But then it also led to um, uh, that combined with other factors led to some, some additional um, uh, government action on behalf of, of the Australian government against paper mills. Um, so that was really interesting for us to sort of look at as a comparison. 
So through this process, like students are exploited. So here's the loaded question, right? You know, so many months later, do universities care? Yeah, it's a good question. I think on an individual case by case basis, the answer is yes. They certainly care if it's happening in their shop. So I'm going to answer a yes and no. And then I'm curious to see, hear what my colleagues think, because I don't think we've talked about it in that. That's a great question. So some of them jumped right on it and said, thank you. And I think in general, there's, there is great concern about keeping um, students safe from this kind of stuff. And so to the degree that we've had a response in the U.S., that's been it. Um, but, but I don't know if it's possible for us to take the kind of coordinated or regulatory action that we saw in Australia, because uh, education is, first of all, a state thing in the U.S. primarily. So we'd almost have to go to each individual state. And then even then, um, higher ed is not even that um, coherent, right? Um, so one institution that might be private, one institution might be public and different states. It's, it's really hard. So I guess we were daunted almost immediately by how to get the word out effectively if this is a problem that's widespread. I don't know that we've solved that problem. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying. To, it, is, it is a good question, and I was thinking as you were talking, Bill, about um, how we started learning more about contract cheating in general, and the existing measures that universities take, which is very different across different institutions, as you were noting. Um, so this idea of um, care came to me like this: How do we define where we kind of care about cheating? but then care about the students, care about the, the, the teachers that are teaching these courses. And one of the conversations I guess we have had about do universities care is they seem to, from based on what I've heard, at least in um, our US context, a lot has to do with the kinds of things with surveillance, right? Like, um, and I think Bill and Jim are really good at managing that conversation, by the way. <laughs> I've watched them do their mojo and work <laughs> um, the, because often we have these proctors, right? These things to like stop the students from doing this. But what I also appreciate about the report is that it brought it back to what we do, I think, pretty good for the most part in our own discipline, in our own house units, if you will, is think about assignments and scaffolding and localizing um, our assignments, because often the paper mills, what they do is they prey on the recycled materials that are, are existing out there and that they've been scraping and getting and from all these different kinds of sources that we haven't even talked about yet. Um, so I guess, yeah, um, when I think about care, I think about right now, well, the conversation is still kind of centered on how can we stop students from doing it? Whereas I feel like Jim and Bill do a good job of uh, reframing it about like, well, let's talk about education <laughs> and, and at these different levels of like teachers and classrooms to units like departments to then colleges, you know, it, in, in building up from there. Right? I feel like our discipline has a good model, right? To kind of, um, and maybe Jim and Bill, you can talk more about sympathizing with, you know, other disciplines that do do the kinds of testing that we don't necessarily do, right? Um, and so how do we, re yeah, reconcile the ways we do different, the different ways we do education? 
um, in this institution. Yeah, we're in, we're in this interesting moment right now, especially um, December 2020, uh, in, in that, that moment right there in the pandemic where we're, we're distant and, and we're largely online. Uh, and we have this growth of ed tech and um, you know, people like, just, there's just so much work right that Chris Gillier and everybody else talking about you know, the, the, the cop stuff in terms of ed tech software uh, that's being promulgated out there by companies to institutions. Uh, and so there, there is a certain uh, strain that wants to look at this kind of growth of contract cheating uh, illicit activity and say, no, we need more cop stuff to counter that. Uh, and our voice has been, uh, you know, no, we don't want more ed tech cop stuff. We want, you know, uh, better assignments. We want students to come forward and, and talk about these things. We want to use this to talk with students about sort of the illicit red ops that are going on that are not just going on in terms of, you know, getting them to paper mill, but are, you know, trying to steal elections and all kinds of other stuff. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of where we're at in terms of the conversation. And it's been interesting talking to other disciplines because we have, you know, a, a background, um, with, you know, iterative assignment design, uh, you know, with, with localizing assignments, um, uh, we're trying to move assignments away from gun control for or against marijuana legalization for or against, and those canned assignments that paper mills just, you know, suck in, you know, student work through a variety of means, like even through fake contests, like we, we documented, um, and, and then recycle it and sell it on the back end to students. Um, that's something that, that I think is a unique thing in our field uh, because of our 20 year history of sort of opposing uh, technologies like turn it in uh, mm -hmm. and the cop stuff in our own field. And it's been interesting to sort of see how that is not the case in other disciplines. And it's also not the case, generally speaking, abroad. Um, and for us, that's been a real learning moment uh, to sort of talk and learn with other faculty and disciplines outside the United States about that. Yeah, I'll, let me just amplify that because this is good podcast material, if you ask me. Um, so here's the in interesting thing that happened and that caused Jim. Jim and I have had to be alert on, on, the, on the topic of red ops all the time because another interesting dynamic of red ops is often it's a technique involved with asymmetrical conflict and, and here's what we mean by that red ops is cheap and accessible and so non-state actors often use it to upend the power dynamics but then the, the big power players are not are not unsophisticated in it themselves. And so there's always a return stroke coming, right? So we put out this report. We said, we're, hey, this is probably not what you guys want to see. We start getting a little bit of media coverage around the contact cheating piece. Meanwhile, Jim and I had never heard those two words put together before in quite that way. Contract cheating, what do you mean? We had heard about paper mills. Yeah, I mean, we were very naive in some ways because we were chasing this as a instance of weaponized rhetorical content using familiar techniques to us in the, you know, tech geek world. We didn't necessarily make the connection that, oh, this is a whole, this is a whole thing that there are academics out there who study this phenomenon called contract cheating. So we started hearing from them. And it seemed like they were use, they had useful information that would help us. And they did. And then right on the heels of that came 
um, requests from some of these big ed tech companies that do cop stuff. They're like, oh, would you like to, uh, would you like our PR department to help uh, your report get more visibility? And so we had a very strange conversation um, with a couple, We're not gonna of, name the names. a couple of people you could probably guess who work for some of these companies, um, not any one of them, but more like a group of them, you know, and we were like, oh, no, 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 no. We are not interested in having you accelerate a narrative of cheating is rampant. You need new tools to 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 fight it. And we have just the thing. Uh-uh, not us. Move along. And so we did have to kind of play a little defense there. Wouldn't you say that, Jim? Yeah, it was an awkward moment. Um, and, you know, when we when we talk about, you know, like Stacey Perman Clark's work as WPA, talking about, you know, how these these kinds of plagiarism, you know, services and things like that and impact Black students, students of color and stuff like that, it gets quiet very quickly uh, in, in the ed tech uh cop world uh, of this kinds of th these kinds of technologies uh and, and i think that that's that's so unique from our field right now uh in the conversation at least as we've seen it um globally in terms of that uh it's changing a little bit especially with 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 uh, the conversations around um you know surveillance regarding exams and proctorio proctor you and stuff like that but it, it's it's something that's that, that at least to us was was a very jarring experience between disciplines in, in, in that moment more after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. I've never heard contract cheating those two words together either. So um, I'm going to miss the opportunity if I don't ask, like, what, what is that? Yeah, I'll, I'll play definition one more time. So contract cheating is basically you can hire someone to do your academic work for you. And it can be a kind of product-based transaction like buying a paper, but it could be also much more rampant. And if you, if you read some of the more egregious instances, you can pretty quickly dig up a rate card for hiring someone to do a whole degree for you. And uh, the, the cases in Australia that really brought that to the fore were happening in their military academy. And that also produces a pretty significant security risk because now you have 
a potential military officer who's compromised by this external entity because they have a record of them cheating. Mm. And, then and, they and in some cases, they, they request access to the core shell. Uh, so people are handing over uh, their login credentials to a person who's working on behalf of a contract cheating site uh, who's logging into the core shell and scraping things from the core shell, but they also have the instructor's contact information and can put them in a situation of blackmail. Uh, so we heard about these examples and we do think that they're real um, and it's, it's concerning. So there's, there's definitely like not, not good actors there, bad actors um, that, are, that are working on behalf of paper mills um, to do these things with students. Yeah, so I think that's the two ends of the spectrum of what contract cheating is, but, but um, you could think of it just in general terms as paying someone to do your work for you instead of you doing it. Tell me a bit about the methodology for this report. Where did the data come from? How long was data collection and why? What domains did you review and why? The first, the first pilot sample was pretty quick. Um, we had a list of 14 paper mill domain names. And those were, those were domain names that we had seen in isolated instances. So there was a cluster um, that had targeted stanford.edu. Uh, and that we'd seen WIST.edu previously uh, and RPI.edu and a couple other ones as isolated instances. Um, so we had those, uh, those paper mill domain names. And then with the Stanford, there was a cluster. And the Stanford example was fascinating because it, um, one of the compromises was something that was sort of, uh, uh, sort of to the periphery of, of rhetoric studies, not, not so many writing studies, but it was a, a compromise of a research center at Stanford's website um, that some people in our field might know. Um, but it boosted the, the page, the Stanford page rankings were, were, were significantly boosted um, by these multiple compromises on Stanford's site. So we had a bunch of domain names from those examples to sort of use uh, in this quick uh, survey, let's call it, uh, uh, that, that became the pilot. Um, so the, the general gist of it was uh, bracketing the domain name uh, and then the, 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 the .edu TLD as a, as a search query, as a, as a combined search query, and seeing that domain name's occurrence across the .edu TLD. Um, and that was just basically scraping the data, the search results, cleaning the data, uh, and then looking at the specific instances of what exactly is going on and happening. A lot of those examples were SQL redirect hacks um, in which, you know, you go and clicky clicky on the, the top level, on, on the host, let's say it's um, www.stanford.edu um, forward slash, uh, you know, writing or something like that. You click on it and then you're automatically redirected to an external site that's a paper mill site. Uh, and then the second you're redirected to it, a chat box appears. There's actually, there's a person on the other end of it um, who's offering to help. Um, so that was 14 domain names that we looked at um, in the pilot across um, the, the .edu TLD. And it was a very quick study. It took about two days. Um, it took about a day to, to do the initial scraping of data and about two days to code the data. Uh, and then we had um, essentially four different examples of ways in which um, the .edu TLD was being compromised. Uh, that included things like the SQL redirect hack, but also included, you know, um, 
a combination in some cases of, of, of uh, content injection where you know a WordPress site is, is vulnerable instead of re doing a redirect hack, um, you know, content is being pushed into the site's page, into the content manager system, into the database um, to boost, boost the page rankings for paper mill. Uh, and then we saw comment comment um, propagation where a paper mill is, you know, everybody's seen this before. It's the kind of thing you don't really look twice at where you have a WordPress site that's maybe old or another content manager system um, that's old and the, the comments are not locked down. So you have 10,000 comments that have been, uh, you know, put into their, their system that boosts the page rankings for paper mills. So we saw examples of things like that. And then the, the fourth one that was the most disturbing one, uh, and one that is not necessarily a technological failure, but a failure of, of institutions and people, was a, a concerted social engineering effort on behalf of certain paper mills to create and propagate fake contests, essay contests, um, that in many cases, universities uh, promoted on their sites. Uh, like, for example, we... we um, having uh, the um, West Virginia University's College of Business on their main site uh, had a, a paper mill contest that was uh, said to be a scholarship contest for students that was very clearly a paper mill. Uh, and we saw this happening on student services pages over and over again, both in the pilot and then later on too. Um, so that was the fourth thing that we documented that was really disturbing because that was something like, you know, it wasn't a technological failure. It was a failure of people to check things. And people were, in some cases, amplifying those things extensively because they thought they'd be they were amplifying you know, helpful resources for students. Um, one institution, an R1, uh, had it um, on their main site as a, as, a, as a blog post promoting this, this fake essay contest. Um, and it was a student services office too. And then they had it on their Facebook feed promoting it. And then on Facebook, it had been shared by other institutions because this institution had backed it. Um, so it was kind of a worst case scenario. And that was the one that really sent chills through Bill and I's like <laughs> spines. And we were like, this is really bad uh, because they're not only deceiving students, they're harvesting essays um, and then probably reselling them on the, on the other side. That was, that was our theory. And that one company in particular um, had a super sketchy history where they had uh, been incorporated in Wyoming under some, uh, some strange circumstances and things like that so they could get payments in the United States. Um, but uh, you know that was 10 years ago. And since then, um, I think their payment system has evolved considerably. Yeah, I would say I'll add a couple of things just in case this is useful. Um, when we talk about the SEO boost that, that these um, places get, Jim mentioned the Stanford example. So Google was created at Stanford and um, it's probably uh, one of the more well-known institutions by reputation, right? So the way that works is, let's say you have a shady paper mill called shadypapermill.com. Um, by itself, Google, if you search for that, Google is not going to give that a lot of reputational value. But if that URL appears inside a .edu domain, like stanford.edu, its credibility goes up. And mm -hmm. so it's a little like money laundering, except you're reputation laundering. Um, and I'm not sure if everyone is aware that that's how the mechanism of ordering goes when you search for something that what you see 
washes through that PageRank algorithm and gets reputational boosts. And here is a situation that says, we're an educational resource. So Google is gonna go, all right, if you're a real one, then you'll be inside EDU domains and you'll be inside well-ranked or, or EDU domains that are well thought of, like you know maybe the one that gave birth to us. Um, and so getting inside something like stanford.edu is the holy grail of an SEO boost for something like uh, a paper mill. I was just, I was just gonna add, um, when I, when I plopped on and kind of reached out to Jim and Bill, I'm like, Hey guys, <laughs> what's going on over here? Um, that's how I actually got out of the project. Uh, it was the report, right? And I'm like flabbergasted. Um, I, I just basically systematized it in my own code that I wrote and created a crawler of my own to see these things. And what helped with that and being able to write that particular code and method of scraping in, in, in this way was I was also then able to use other lists to cross-reference. So what Jim and Bill are talking about with like .edu domains, I, I created a list of um, Carnegie ratings. So let's, let's get a list of Carnegie ratings um, and compare and see, is there some kind of pattern worth noticing? And I think I was just taking a look here at the, I had to go back to the article. Um, out of R1 and R2s, it was just under 70%. Um, um, what was it? Oh, gosh, sorry. It looks like our sample includes a relatively even split between R1 and R2 universities versus all other kinds of universities. So it was kind of a half and half, but then there were certain kinds of attacks that were more prominent among R1 and R2s than others. So we're, we're, we're trying to also find these attack patterns too. Um, um, but the whole point is though, is again, that TLD really does matter. And, and if we compare it even with, I don't know if Google does anything with Carnegie ratings, I have no idea, but you know, those are the kind of conversations and inquiries that would kind of come next, right? Um, but, but some of the, the ways of being able to collect this data quickly now with this script and is, is able to then quickly compare them against lists like that and see if we can find any other kinds of patterns. So that's kind of a, um, we're, we're kind of trying to use the same tools <laughs> to keep yeah. up. Yeah, I think methodologically, that was another question of yours, Charles. Like, like any study, I think what we hoped is to have a transparent method that others could reproduce in part so that they could take up the, the task as well if they want. Um, Cause we have no illusions that we're seeing everything yet. And, uh, it, the best way to do that was to be as clear as we can about first do this, then do this. And so all of our data is in the report. If you click through to some of the links, you'll see the open data. That's the actual data set that we've created. And the categories are descriptive. Um, as much as we can, we automate what we capture. So we grab the URL and paste it in there. But, but a lot of these are also human judgment. So if you're looking at the one sample with almost a thousand of them, we went through those together and um, labeled them if the attack is active or not by clicking the link to see if it's still there. Um, we tried to um, come up with all these categories of types of attacks and Ooh, label those. Yeah. I, I, did, I did figure out a way to automate that active one. So yeah. that's coming. Thank you. 
Yeah, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really what I was going to say. Hadn't, like, if Chris hadn't story- come on board, we would have we would have not been able to do this, especially you know his no. script, his script kept to kick things up a notch in terms of our ability to, to gather more data, but also just you know the coding um, distributed among the three of us became something we could actually do. Um, whereas I, it was just, we were like, this was already like on borrowed time for all of us. So it really helped a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I, that, that was the point I was getting to is that we're really grateful for Chris's efforts because Jim and I were sort of trying to be as transparent as we could, as we went along, but we were thoroughly doing it by hand at first. And when we saw how big the problem was, we're like, oh man, there's no way we're going to get everything. And so we needed something like uh, Chris, Chris has done to help to even capture a bigger piece of it. And one, so that one thing helped, that helps to explain the sampling that we've done. One yeah. thing that, that Chris was able to show us in the visualization too was specifically how certain paper mills were, were using different kinds of strategies. So that was something that we were sort of thinking about in the pilot uh, as a possibility but we didn't have enough scale to sort of look at that. Um, and, and then that, that sort of indicates to us that certain paper mills are adopting certain kinds of SEO strategies based on perhaps who they're working with or what their goals are in terms of SEO. Um, that's something I think to pay attention to in the, but we're paying attention to the future as we gather more data, uh, uncovering those kinds of strategies, um, which, you can only, which you can only do at scale. We can't uh, you know, look at one paper mill and go, oh yeah, that's their strategy. I mean, some of these are really complicated where, you know, the redirect, for example, will redirect these to any one of five paper mills uh, in sort of a revolving wheel, um, or it'll be a one-off redirect. So you only, you know, if you, if you hit the page a second time, it doesn't exist. Uh, there was an, an institution in our discipline recently that was, that was compromised uh, with a redirect hack for quite a while. Um, and it was a one, one-time redirect. So if you had a cookie in your, in your browser history uh, or it had the IP history, it was not going to redirect you a second time. And that meant that it, it, was, it, was, um, it, it, it was persistent in terms of people did not then go and say, oh yeah, we have to patch this. So, yeah, yeah what, we, what the fancy pants hacker word is a zero day. So it would just sit there and because it's relatively hard to detect, it just keeps going and going and infect, affecting new people without really anybody doing anything about it. There's tons of fascinating angles here to this, and it's really all so complex. But a couple of the things that stick out to me is the way that these paper mills um, uh, tether themselves to like institutional ethos, right? And I think that is that's fascinating. And then also the collection methods, right? I think that you explained it pretty well, Jim, when you said it's a failure of people, right? Who are making these fake contests to 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 in, to get um to get work from students and then sell it on the other side. But let's focus on how we can move to action. What can instructors in the classroom do? What can administrators do to combat this problem? Yeah, that's a good, a great question. I think some of the answers, um, surprisingly, are not technological, um, and they are familiar. And this is another thing that I think made Jim and I initially feel good about working on this problem is that 
some of the things that we already advocate in the field, like having um, local relevant um, assignments, um, are the very things that we would uh, recommend to, to make it less likely that your students are, are targeted by these kinds of, uh, of attacks. Some of them are also pretty simple things like update your WordPress site and keep it keep the uh, spam uh, blockers up. Um, so those are two. Um, we have some others that I think are um, coming out of the work that Chris has done to try to show us where the networks are. Um, and I, I think it's still early days, but I'm, I'm tentatively excited about those because once we can see the broad picture, we'll have new ways that we perhaps can intervene. Yeah, I'm trying to piggyback off that in the sense of if, if yeah, we can share this method and methodology too of like, you know, searching for this problem and other people get on board too and do the similar kind of approach. Um, what I was excited about meeting with Australian folks and, and colleagues was this idea of international cooperation too, um, to recognize that it is an international problem, <laughs> like it has that scope, which is um, uh, another, like you said, Charles, there's so many angles, right? It's like my, my brain is having trouble right now even <laughs> keeping them straight. Um, um, it keeps me pretty scrambled, but I think, um, yeah, beyond the kind of localist pers uh, process of creating assignments and, and those types of things, I think the other part is, yeah, the longer game of how do we start, one, creating the conversation where we understand these paper mills better and what they're these SEO strategies to then, I don't know, this is like a pipe dream maybe for me is like, what does that mean for eventually if we have international cooperation, talk to search engines about how we approach certain kinds of content like this. And then that's where it gets even meatier, right? About, about content moderation. Um, and so, yeah, that, those are, I feel like another kind of conversation and angle too, right? When we think about not even just instructors and administrators, but how can we as educators yeah, send this up the line, right? Um, and and talk about it at that infrastructural and in international level. Uh, so that's one thing I've been thinking about in my head. Yeah, Jim, you, you've had a chance to talk to actually instructors about how they could teach, uh, how they could talk to students about these problems, right? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting at, at my institution, uh, there's been a, a fair amount of interest at the administrative level uh, especially in the Center for Teaching and, and Learning uh, about this. Uh, and then uh, various administrators across the university, especially um, deans of undergraduate studies in this problem, uh, and also IT. So uh, that's what's one thing that I think has been the most interesting for me is, is seeing people from these different areas, from, from student administration, from IT, uh, and then from the general faculty perspective, talk about this as a common problem that's shared. And uh, I think I, I talked about this in the beginning, but you know, for the IT uh, people, this is a different kind of problem because it's got a, a longer history as a kind of pharma hack and stuff like that. And it also, in some cases, falls under a sort of a different uh, umbrella of university response 
if it's considered to be a compromise. It's not something that's necessarily going to be publicized or talked about in, in, in the same way as one might in, in, in education talk about it. Um, so that's been interesting. A lot of institutions have sort of quietly patched things uh, and not said anything about it. Uh, we've seen that happen a couple, couple more than a few times, especially in the pilot. Uh, and so that's been something to sort of think about is how these different units respond uh, and talk with each other or not. Uh, and it's very institutional specific. It's very institution specific in terms of how that happens. Yeah, I would say from a computers and writing standpoint, that's another angle on this that we've talked about is um, this renews the calls by people uh, for by folks like Stuart Selber in his most recent book um, for a closer working relationship between the academic units and the IT services units on campus. Mm. Um, when we switch to online learning suddenly uh, in the pandemic. Um, it became really clear how that infrastructure matters and what, what you can and can't do as an instructor if you never gave it a second thought before. And this is the kind of thing that if we, if you, if we had regular channels of communication about what our pedagogy is supposed to do and, and what kinds of activities we want to support, we would have a, a, an easier time, I think, talking about why we need this or that kind of filter or this or that kind of screening protocol, like so that they would be watching for these kinds of things. Um, again, I, I come back to like, imagine what would happen if this happened in the physical plant. If, if someone came and spray painted on the side of a building, a paper mill URL, the university would know how to respond to it. Right. Well, that's essentially what's happened is they've, they've defaced the infrastructure of the university in a way that is, promoting this illicit service and no one quite knows what to do. When you first published the report in, in February, 2021, and uh, it's grown since then, I know you've taken it in different directions, article work coming out later, but initially, why was it important for you all to publish it as an, a report, an open access report, instead of going through the peer review process? It's simple. It would have taken six, six months, nine months, a year to get attention to it. And we were concerned about just the data sitting there uh, and not being acted on. So we, we weren't thinking about this as a, as a peer reviewed publication at the time. We, we thought about this, especially as a writing, as a as Bill, as a, as, a, as a dean, myself, as a director of comp, I was thinking about this as a problem that needed to be addressed right now. Uh, and I still think that's the case, especially um, with. Um, with, with students right now in terms of their, they, they, they've already been in the pandemic, even if they're back moving towards face-to-face -face classrooms again, they've been relying on, on online infrastructure in a way they haven't um, in many cases in the past, to, prior to two years ago. So the, this stuff is, we haven't seen paper mills ramp down uh, the, this work. Uh, if anything, we've seen it ramped up. Uh, and I don't think that it's going to be um, going down anytime soon. So that was sort of why we wanted to get it out quickly as a report um, and get people to sort of act on it. And, and the response the response from our field was, was, was I would say minimal in the beginning. Uh, and it was more universities that were looking at this and going, oh yeah, we need to act on this. There were some people in the field specifically that worked that said, yes, I'm gonna, this is important. I gotta, I gotta work on this right now, but there's a lot of other stuff going on right now, uh, especially February 20, you know, 2021, I mean, you know, 
January 6th had just happened, white supremacy, you know, all this other, all these other things happening. And, and this was a, a, a smaller issue that was very complicated uh, to explain and to communicate. I'd, I'd also say, Charles, just straightforward, as Jim said, it, the, there was the urgency and there was also no thought of it at the time as scholarship. Like we weren't aware that this was a thing you could publish on in, in that, in the way that some other folks go, hey, hey, there's a whole literature here of tracking down these things and documenting them. And if you're gonna, you should probably do it the, the right way. And so then we, we were like, oh yeah, okay. Um, and we had already kind of gone down the path of open data and clear, transparent methods so that they could be reproducible. So we didn't think it was that much of a lift to, to go ahead and flesh it out and go, all right, well, we'll have to connect it to, um, to what's, what's been going on in this area uh, in our own field. And um, we saw that that could give it a little bit more traction and credibility for others to use. So uh, I guess we came by it by surprise. I go, <laughs> oh yeah, okay, I guess this is an article. We didn't ever think of it that way. Uh, initially not let's kind of put the wheels down now on the interview with a, a final question um what what's next where's this project going what can folks in the field expect for upcoming stuff from you all and then if you'd also like to muse a bit on where you want other researchers to look at um i think folks would enjoy that start off with um, some canadian colleagues reached out as well um and um, kind of going along the lines of like, one, hey, these conversations are happening. We're interested too. Um, but they wanted us to do a scan of Canada, uh, which, so that's actually something that I've, I've gone up and done, which had to be done differently. So that's a whole other conversation, actually, um, because they don't have just a shared dot. They don't share a dot edu dot ca, like a dot au, like for Australia. So it actually became a task of making a list of all the Canadian universities <laughs> and using that, which changed the method actually entirely when it comes to searching. So um, also say like, that's another thing that's kind of happening. We're just seeing what's going on in Canada um, and, and kind of filtering those results right now. Um, so I'm not sure where that's gonna take us um, three, um, in anytime soon, but uh, we're, we're working through that. Um, I'm, I've been curious myself along the lines of like, okay, we have this thing contract cheating. We have paper mills now, as Jim and Bill have been talking about with online education, right? Ramping up paper mills are not ramping down, right? They're actually, this is great for us. And so it's gotten me thinking a lot as I've been hearing them think about the content strategy of education online education when it comes to like, we are producing this infrastructure of video learning, right? This kind of like scaffolded, we have things like LinkedIn learning, which VT actually, Virginia Tech um, has, we pay for, for our students, right? Or at least their fees pay for it, right? Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is we have these like educational platforms and infrastructures around kind of a more stable thing that you don't update much. And actually what we found with paper mills and the, the uh, um, patterns, right, is that they often kind of leach towards the, the recycled materials. So I guess I'm starting to think more about questions about what does it mean when we have a harder update cycle 
right? When we create these online curriculums that really can't budge quickly because you have to remake them entirely, right? But that means you have the same assignments over and over again. So I guess I'm just thinking about this. Are we perpetuating the problem? And I don't, it's, it's becoming even more wicked in my brain, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think we could go, we could go uh, hopeful or, or ominous in this conversation. And um, I know. I, I'm sorry. So, no, it's fine. I think it's just the nature of this, this thing that we're in. So I'll start with one and I'll go to the other. Um, so the hopeful side is that I think that we have a, a wholesome answer in our field, in our theoretical orientation to learning uh, and writing. And that is what is lost in this scenario when students are able to readily get somebody else's work and turn it in is um, the chance to practice. So that's how I like to talk about it is, is it doesn't help them in the long run to learn something um, and to be prepared for the next writing situation that they're going to be in. Because if they're buying canned content for canned assignments, the real world doesn't serve up writing tasks like that. Um, <laughs> you know, the, so you're not going to be as prepared. And uh, I think that means that our pedagogical instincts are still the right ones to address this. The challenge is, and the really interesting, maybe uh, fascinating thing is that all the things that make ed tech work at scale are the things that make uh, it vulnerable to these kinds of exploits. Um, and so, you know, that there's a glimmer of hope there if you look at it the right way. But here's the other scary thing. Uh, so let me let me leave you with an ominous note. Uh, and and Jim is Jim can talk a little bit about the direct to student appeal of this because he's got some interesting stories on that. But they're not only appealing to students; they're also appealing to teachers. There are services out there who will grade your papers for you. Got too much to grade? We can take care of that. Let us do it for you. You can outsource that too. Yeah, we see, we've seen sort of the growth of, of some of these offerings and it's pretty, pretty disturbing. But um, yeah, I say that the immediate thing that we're working on is this, is this Canadian scan. And um, uh, Sarah Eaton, um, one of the contract sheeting scholars that we've, that we've talked with, uh, has a graduate student, Helen uh, Pethrick, that helped prepare this list of Canadian institutions. That's really helpful. And Chris's script is, is sort of the way that we're, we're, we're going to actually be able to do this uh, once we get around to, to coding it, which is going to be a huge task, kind of like the last one. It took us, I think, a month to, to code the last data set. It had over a thousand um, results that we had to sort of call down to 996 um, that we actually had to sort of go and check individually and things like that to figure out what they were. Um, so that'll take that'll take some time, um, but I think long term, uh, I'm 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 very much interested in in sort of using these kinds of things as teachable case examples for instructors and students because they're just happening in so many other aspects of our lives right now, uh, and it's kind of the in my view that's kind of one of the big things that we're really trying to contend with um, is not just misinformation but sort of like really. Uh, specific kinds of campaigns that involve compromise, misrepresentation, uh, deceit, um, all kinds of ways in which this is happening all throughout our societies right now. 
Yeah, I, I want to also respond to one other part of your question and Charles and say, in terms of what we where we think others could make contributions, I think as a field, we we ought to consider um, where we want to draw the ethical line about what is a, a, a an okay direct to student service and where does it cross the line? Because that's the other trend that we're seeing with big companies like Chegg and others desperately trying to come from more shady territory to more legitimate territory in terms of what they offer. And a lot of their value propositions sound a lot like our pedagogical ones. You're learning from your peers, it's okay. We're kind of in a bad spot right now uh, in terms of Chegg. I mean, Chegg has a partnership with Purdue OWL now. Um, so that's a resource that, you know, has been a stalwart in our discipline for, for decades. Yeah. And, and now it's a, it's a Chegg uh, product uh, in terms of its affiliation. And the same thing is true with other things that we use, like easybib.com that a lot of students use. It's a Chegg product now. It's been bought, bought by Chegg. Um, and the, the, that's a, it's a very concerning trend. I mean, especially in terms of other um, companies that are close to us. For example, Barnes and Noble has been on a, on a purchasing spree recently. You know, they're in a lot of student bookstores. They're marketing their own direct-to-student tutoring service that is also kind of borderline concerning. But it's concerning just in general that there is this, this increasing trend, like Bill talked about, to, to provide to market these direct-to-student services um, that are distributed and um, can, you know, that that at the very basic level are duplicating or taking away from resources that we already provide students, uh, like yeah. the writing center, for example. Yeah, and they have gig economy dynamics. So yeah. they pay students on your campus to take notes and upload those, and then they sell those to other students on your campus. And in some cases, they promote the f names and faces of these peer providers. Um, so they create a group of, a network on your campus of people promoting their service. I think we, we we thought about maybe marketing like talk like calling the support house on fire because in a lot of ways it kind of feels like our whole house, our disciplinary house yeah. is starting to catch on fire. Yeah. Um, and you know, it'd be I wish that more of our professional organizations were making firm statements about the, the this problem right now that we're facing mm -hmm. uh, as a, in a variety of areas, but the direct to student aspect of it from the contract cheating perspective but also from these borderline services that are encroaching intentionally on our, on our spaces, like, like Purdue Owl. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yeah. they have monetization strategies for things like what the writing center does. And so I, I don't know if the writing centers all around the country are uh, understand that they have commercial competitors now on their own campuses. Right. Um, and how do we feel about that? I mean, maybe we, uh, maybe there are some ways in which we would not hate that. I don't know. I don't want, I don't want to. Uh, uh, on our campus, this, this past, <laughs> uh, we, we, they, there were signs in the student center marketing this and we requested that they take them down. Um, Sounds like uh, our field needs to wake up, right? A little bit, <laughs> uh, perhaps. You all are, have woken up to this problem, right? It's, I don't know. Maybe there's more. <laughs> it, feels like, it feels like there's more. It feels like we're, yeah. you know, looking at a very small 
slice of a much bigger problem. That's, yeah. that's sort of been the feeling that we've had since we started looking at this is that, you know, we know like the 14 domain names we look at, the registration for these is so cheap. And part of the way these services propagate is they can, they can afford to have thousands of domain names registered uh, and, 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 and play that kind of shuffle game with their, with their CMSs um, and hosting services and things like that. And, and we're only seeing a very small sliver of it. Bill, Chris, Jim, thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the podcast. It's brilliant work. Um, thanks for doing it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Charles. Thanks, Charles. Appreciate much. Wow. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with doctors Bill Hart Davidson, Jim Rodolfo, and Chris Lindgren. These scholars are doing such incredibly important work for our field, for writing studies. We need to continue to circulate their report from earlier this year and pay attention to the way that paper mills might be impacting our own institutions. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Season 5 has only three more episodes left. Make sure you are tuning in. I'll be back next week with another new interview, an entry in our Emerging Scholar series. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media, Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari. Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meharin, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Grapes, and Admiral Bob. <laughs>